Hey, Village Church, Pastor Mark here. We are really excited today to have Gary Haugen as our guest speaker. Gary is the founder and CEO of International Justice Mission, which is a mission that goes around the world fighting violence and connects it to poverty, that if you fight violence, you actually uh, help people get out of poverty. That's his thesis. He has one of the most talked about and viewed TED Talks in the history of TED Talks. He has a book called The Locust Effect, where I was first introduced to Gary. And honestly, from a distance, this guy's become one of my heroes. He's an internationally known and renowned speaker, uh, speaks all over the world. So to have him here is a real gift. So we wanted to be able to take the opportunity to stop our series in the problem of God, uh, which was actually supposed to be addressing evil and suffering today. But here's a life that literally represents the fight against evil and suffering to show that the ideas of Christianity, which we've been studying in this series, actually flow down to people doing something with their life, that they're fighting against, which is what people are called to do when they follow Jesus, to fight against evil and suffering and relieve it in the world. And that's what Gary's given his whole life to. And so we're gonna move the topic of evil and suffering to the end of the series. We're gonna add a week on the end so I can preach it and address it directly uh, if you're here and wondering about that issue, but Gary represents someone who's actually saying, I follow Jesus and I'm gonna fight against evil and suffering and give my life to it. So he'll tell you his story. Uh, he's honestly, uh, at Village Church, this guy and his organization are one of the core parts of everything that we're about. Uh, we did a golf trip a couple of years ago and raised over $400,000 to support them and what they do. And so it's a real privilege to have Gary here. So would you please give a warm village welcome to Gary Haugen? Well, thank you so much. It is a, an extraordinary joy to get to be here with you at Village Church. Obviously, I can't possibly know where all of you are in your own journey of following Jesus. Some of us are in early places in that journey. Some of us have been at that for quite some time. I feel like I have actually been trying to follow Jesus for quite a long time. But I still find myself challenged by a very fundamental question, and that's this. Are Jesus and I really interested in the same things? Now, I know what I'm interested in, and, and you know what you're interested in, and we could probably make lists together, right, of the things that we're really passionate about, but what about if today we maybe just set all of those lists aside for a moment, and what if we asked ourselves from from first principles, but what is God passionate about? Not what is he sort of vaguely interested in, but what makes God's heart beat fast? And could someone actually know what God was passionate about by seeing what it is that we are passionate about? This morning, I'd like to have us consider two of the more unfamiliar passions of God. And first, that's God's passion for the world. And then secondly, God's passion for justice. First, God's passion for the world. It's so beautiful. Brandon started our time of worship this morning with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. In John 3.16, we can see that the whole incarnation, the whole coming of Jesus into the world was motivated by God's love for the world. And of course, when it refers to the world, it's not talking about the, the big dirt-clawed globe, right? It's talking about all these people 
All these bazillions of people who were stretched across all these confusing continents and cultures. This is what God is passionate about. His heart beats fast for this vast, vast world. Now, by contrast, what am I passionate about? Well, to be totally honest with you, every single day, I am totally passionate about me. I love me. I'm fascinated by me like every single day, right? I don't have to wake up in the morning and remind myself to think of me, right? It, it all seems to come rather naturally. Now, my pastor, of course, says this is more narrow than I should be as a Christian. And so there's this effort to try to broaden your heart a little bit, right? And on a really good day, I will find myself actually extending love and compassion to everybody in the universe who's in my immediate family. That's a pretty good day in my household, right, where I might extend more love and compassion to my wife and four kids than I do to myself. And they usually circle that day on the calendar. They pray it might happen again next year. And then I might have some other kind of larger spiritual experience, and I will find my heart beginning to grow even, even larger. And I will find myself extending love and compassion to everybody in the universe that I like and who likes me and who is like me, right? This then becomes my world of passion and focus and energy. It's this little shriveled world of me and mine. Now, I think Jesus probably finds this totally natural and totally understandable, but I don't think that everything that's natural and understandable is necessarily godly, right? So at least maybe here, as we gather to try to follow Jesus in these things, we can at least agree upon what the goal is. And even if we're not there yet, we can sense that perhaps the goal is to have a heart that's becoming more like the heart of God, that shares something of his passion and love for this broader world. Now, this came home to me in an incredibly personal and powerful way in 1994. I was working in Washington, D.C. as a prosecutor for the U.S. Department of Justice, and I was put on loan to the United Nations to direct the U.N.'s genocide investigation in Rwanda in 1994. You might remember this horrific tragedy where about 800,000 people were murdered in about eight weeks' time. And of course, one of the leaders of the UN presence there in Rwanda was General Dallaire, this incredible Canadian uh, leader who was trying to sound the alarm about the Rwanda genocide, and it went unheeded. And afterwards, the international community wanted to try to bring the leaders of the genocide to justice, and so I was sent over as the director of that effort, and I was just basically handed a, a list of 100 different mass graves and massacre sites. And all murder investigations just begin with where the bodies are. And so I spent day after day just sorting through thousands and thousands of these folks who had been murdered by their neighbors. And most of the killing actually took place in churches because the Tutsis had run to the churches for a sanctuary, and then their Hutu neighbors just waded into them and hacked them all to death. 
The most difficult part of this work for me, which was just unspeakable, was actually having to interview the survivors and especially the children who had survived some of these massacres. And I remember one day I had to interview a little eight-year-old girl who had survived a massacre inside a church and she had actually lay amongst the dead for about two and a half days. And I remember sitting across from her at this little table where I'm trying to get her story from her. And the first thing you would have noticed about her was the first thing I noticed, which was really just how beautiful she was. She had these eyes that still had this sparkle to them. And she'd say something funny to make herself laugh. And then they, these white teeth would just burst across her face. And she was gorgeous. But I remember looking into the face of this little eight-year-old Rwandan girl. And it occurred to me in a way that I had never thought of before that the maker of the entire universe specifically intended that this one little eight-year-old Rwandan girl should exist. And not only that, but he intended that she should exist to be with him forever. And he wanted this particular little girl to be with him forever so desperately that he was willing to give up his own son to be murdered to make sure that this little eight-year-old Rwandan girl would be with him forever. And suddenly I was just blown away by the cosmic significance of this one little eight-year-old Rwandan girl. But I also knew from the pink machete scars across the back of her head and her neck that she was just about a millimeter of a machete blow from being part of that huge pile of corpses that we've been cleaning up outside the church. And then it occurred to me that 800,000 other Rwandans who were just as precious to God as that little girl, they could all just drop off the face of the earth, right? And for me as a North American Christian, it just really wouldn't affect my day at all. And suddenly I could sense that there was a significant difference, right, between the way that Jesus was regarding the world and the way I was regarding the world. And so it's been a journey for me now to try to open up the borders of my heart beyond this little shriveled world of just me and mine to try to share something of his love and compassion for the world. But you know, it's interesting as you do that, as you, as you enter into the world and try to share something of the love of Christ with this world, what do you think is probably the most difficult thing for people in our world to believe about the Christian faith? I think it's simply the idea that God is good because they're in so much pain. You know, there'll be more than 10,000 kids who will die today in our world just because their parents can't get them enough food. And when they're suffering and hurting and then dying, how are they somehow supposed to find it believable that God is so good? Or what about the 1.5 billion people on our globe who have no access to medical care? Right down in the United States, we're arguing about, well, our medical plan will allow us to choose our doctor and all these things. For one and a half billion people, they'll never know a doctor, see a doctor. And when they're Families are suffering and hurting and dying. 
How are they somehow supposed to believe that God is good? Or for the hundreds of thousands of children who just live abandoned and alone on the city streets of the big mega cities around the world, how this morning are they somehow supposed to find it believable that God is good and that he loves them? In fact, if you think about it, what is God's plan for making it believable that he is good for those who are suffering and hurting so much in our world? Well, it turns out the answer from the Bible is a little surprising because it turns out that we're the plan and that he doesn't have another plan. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples, to us, his followers, in Matthew chapter 5? He says, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they will see your good works and then give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is why the Apostle Paul says one of the most extraordinary things in all of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.20 where he makes it clear that God is making his appeal to the world through us. And so for 2,000 years, Christians have been trying to make it believable that God is good by going to those who are in need and showing them the goodness of God. So if, those, if there are those who have never heard that God loves them and they're suffering because of guilt and because of a sense of being lost, we're the ones who actually get to go to them and share the good news of the gospel with them. And if others are suffering because they don't have food, well, for heaven's sakes, we, we can actually share ours with them. And if others are suffering because they don't have medicine or doctors, we can help them with that. And if others are suffering because they don't have shelter, we can help them find a home. And, and when we do this, they see us, the body of Christ, show up. And then it becomes believable to them that God is good. But you know, it's interesting because there's actually another category of people in our world who are suffering. And it's interesting to me because they're not suffering because they've, they've never had access to the gospel or because they don't have food or because they don't have doctors or they don't have a house. They're suffering because of the intentional abuse and oppression of other people. These are called the victims of injustice. Now, the word injustice has become a pretty useless word, right? I know in the United States, like, we pretty much use the word injustice to mean, like, everything and to mean nothing, right? And as an American, I pretty much feel like I'm a victim of injustice pretty much, like, every day, all day, right? I don't know. Do you, I was at my grocery store the other day, and um, I'm always in the express lane in my grocery store. And you've got express lanes, right, in your grocery store? But the thing is, there's rules about the express lane, right? And uh, in, in my grocery store, there's a big sign that says 10 items only. So the other day, I got my grocery cart, and I'm, I'm in the express lane, but I got my 10 items. The guy in front of me, 13 items. <laughs> he's totally jamming up the express lane, right? And he's totally breaking the law. And I don't like him getting so mad. I could sue the guy, and I'm a lawyer, and I could do this, right? I... <laughs> Well, just so you know, when the Bible talks about injustice, this is not what it's talking about. <laughs> it 
Injustice in the Bible is actually a particular kind of sin. Injustice is about the abuse of power. The abuse of power to take from other people the good things that God intended for them. Their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruit of their love and their labor. And when someone is strong or just rips those things away because they can, God calls this the sin of injustice. You might remember from the Old Testament, this is the sin that King David committed, remember? When he abused his power as king to steal another man's wife. And then he abused his power as king to steal that man's life. And the prophet Nathan had to confront him for his abuse of power. This is why it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. But on the side of the oppressor was power. Well, what does this kind of injustice look like in our world today? We probably are familiar with what it looks like in our own communities, and our own countries. But what does it look like in the broader world that God loves? Well, in 1997, I left my job at the U.S. Department of Justice to help found this organization, this ministry called International Justice Mission, IJM. And we take on specific cases of violent abuse and oppression in very, very poor countries. So you just might picture teams all across the developing world of indigenous advocates who take on cases of horrific slavery and police abuse and land theft and sexual violence. And we rescue those victims out of that abuse. But we also help bring the perpetrators to justice. And we provide healing aftercare that allows those survivors to come to full restoration. And we've been doing this for 20 years now. And so now I have a pretty clear idea of what injustice looks like in our world. And I'll never forget meeting a young boy in India named Kumar. Kumar grew up in a poor rural village. When he was about five years old, his, his parents passed away and he was left as an orphan. And by the age of eight, Kumar had been trafficked into a brick factory as a slave. And this is how he lives his life. He works 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week, just making and carrying bricks. And he does this day after day, year after year. He's trapped inside this compound with about 70 other people who've been sold into slavery. And even on days when he's been too sick to work, the owner will just come and kick him in the head and just drag him back to work. He will spend his entire life as a slave. The latest estimates in our world now is that there are more than 40 million people held illegally in slavery. So for Kumar and all the other tens of millions who are in literal slavery in our world today, how is it supposed to somehow be believable to them that God is good? Or what about Alina, a little 11-year-old girl I met in the Philippines? who was just horrifically raped by a man in her rural village in the Philippines. And the thing that made it so particularly crushing is that the man who committed that assault was actually the chief of police in her town. 
In the developing world, there is just an epidemic of sexual violence against women and girls. We work in communities where up to 40% of girls are victims of rape or attempted rape by the time they've reached the age of 14. And so for Alina and all these other women and girls who are suffering this kind of violence, how, how is it supposed to be believable to them that God is good? What about Jyoti? Another teenage girl that I met in India when she was just 16. And she also lived in a poor village and she was earnestly trying to help her family just make ends meet and try to survive. And one day some women came to her and said, hey, Jyoti, why don't you come with us to the big city? We can help get you a job there. Then you can send the money home and you can help provide for your family. And so Jyoti went with these women and headed towards the city of Mumbai. But on the way there, they, they gave her some tea that was drugged and she fell unconscious and they just took Jyoti to the red light district and sold her into a brothel for about $250. And there she was stuffed into this underground room underneath the brothel and just, just beaten for three days with plastic pipes and electrical cords and metal rods until she's forced to provide services to the customers there. Jyoti has to service between 20 and 30 men a day, seven days a week, never let out of that brothel. UNICEF tells us that there's about 2 million children that are held in forced prostitution in our world today. So again, just how is Jyoti, how are these other children somehow supposed to find it believable today that God is so good? In fact, if we think about it, how does God regard all of this aching suffering in our world today? Well, fortunately, the scriptures actually address this question. I'm so thankful for the Bible because it does not avoid the hard questions. And I remember when I was leading the Rwandan genocide investigation, particularly finding or rediscovering Psalm 10, where the psalmist cries out, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And then it goes on to describe all of this horrific violence. It says, He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor and he drags him off in his net. It goes on and on to describe all this violence. But then listen to the affirmation of the psalmist in Psalm 10, verses 17 and 18. It says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart you will incline your ear to do justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Or Psalm 35 puts it this way, Psalm 35, 10. O Lord, who is like you? You deliver the poor from him who is too strong for them. You deliver the poor and the needy from those who would rob from them. We could go to scripture after scripture in the Bible where it's absolutely clear that God hates this abuse and he wants it to stop. 
But this has always just raised another question in my mind, which is, well, that's great, God, that you hate this abuse and you want it to stop, but what's your plan for actually doing something about it? And then it turns out the answer from the Bible, again, is pretty surprising because it turns out that we're the plan and that God doesn't have another plan. You've heard of Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 117 says, Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. For those of us who are coming to find that the scriptures are leading us in life, there can be no doubt that God has given to us, his people, the work of justice in the world. But notice when we find out that we're the plan for seeking justice in the world, it's not like we're all standing up and like cheering like, oh God, what a great plan, that's... No, we're sort of looking, you know, left and right and like, uh, okay, God, we're just brainstorming here and no ideas are bad, but that's a bad plan. What's plan B? Because we're pretty good maybe at planting the churches and maybe the feeding programs and so we've sent some doctors out there, but the violence and the injustice, uh, what's your special different team for that? There's no special different team. It is God's people. But we hear these stories and statistics, right? And we can just feel so overwhelmed and just bolted to our chairs with despair because we feel so powerless. But in those moments, I think it's so helpful to remember those moments when the disciples felt exactly the same way. Particularly this wonderful story, you remember, of the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember this story? And do you remember how this story starts? Because Jesus has been teaching for a long time, and everybody's getting, getting hungry. And so the disciples have a brilliant idea. They go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, why don't you send everybody home so they can get themselves fed? But Jesus clearly doesn't want to miss out on the fun of this particular situation. And so he says to the disciples, no, no, you guys feed them. Now, the thing you got to love about the disciples, right, is that they're always just so patient to explain to Jesus what he clearly doesn't understand about this situation. And they say, oh, Jesus, that is so sweet. See, there are 5,000 hungry people here. And they get out a little whiteboard and see it would take actually a half year's wages to be able to, you know, feed them all. And, and we just honestly don't have that kind of cash on us today. So back to you, Jesus. Pretty interesting, right? Because there was nothing unclear about what he asked them to do. He said, feed them. In the same way, he says to us, seek justice, rescue the oppressed. But then they looked at the magnitude of the need, and they looked at their own little tiny resources, and they thought, no, this really can't have anything to do with us. So then what does Jesus say in response? Pretty interesting. He simply asks, well... What do you have? Well, they don't have nothing, so they have to bring forward what they do have, which it turns out is the little boy 
whose mom has packed him a sack lunch, right? And it has five loaves and two fish in it. And this is presented then as the corporate resources to meet the massive need. And this is when the apostle Andrew enters the conversation. He's kind of the intellectual among the apostles. He has a, a graduate de degree from UBC, I think, in public policy. And, and he looks at the five loaves and two fish. And honestly, this is what he says. He says, what are these among so many? See, this would likely be my response. Uh, because I went to college and uh, I took a math course. And uh, you've got 5,000 hungry people and five loaves and two fish. And honestly, if you were as sophisticated as I am, and if you understood the deeper sociological roots of the situation, you'd see there's really nothing for us to do but to sit in the paralysis of despair. <laughs> but what does Jesus say? He simply says, give it to me. What do you have? And will you give it to me so that I can do the miracle? And in that moment, Jesus takes responsibility for the miracle and proceeds to feed 5,000 people to overflowing. You'll notice that Jesus didn't ask them if they had enough. He didn't ask the disciples to do the miracle. He just asked them, what do you have? Will you give it to me so that I can do the miracle? And can I just tell you from the depth of my heart, over the last 20 years, this is what I have seen over and over and over again in places of the most brutal violence and the most terrifying hurt that God is willing to do miracles of justice if his people will simply step forward with what they have. Kumar, for instance, is no longer being held as a slave in that brick factory. Our local IJM team was able to infiltrate that dark place, able to work with local authorities to conduct an operation to rescue Kumar out and all 70 of those others who were being held in slavery. They are included now in our two-year freedom school that moves people who were once in slaves, who were once slaves to places of economic independence and dignity and freedom. And it turns out that Kumar is actually a brilliant young man. He was able to go back to school, eventually came back to work as an intern for IJM, and has helped us now rescue hundreds of people from slavery. And what I also can tell you is that Kumar will testify himself that he knows there's a good God because that God has come into his world through the body of Christ and rescued him out. And now he wants to share that good news with others. And likewise with Alina, she's no longer just trembling in fear and despair that the, the biggest bully in her community could just commit these kinds of assaults with impunity. Our local Filipino team was able to take on her case and not only see that police officer removed from office and removed from his position as chief of police, but he actually was properly prosecuted and is now serving a life sentence for all the abuses that he was committing in that community. That helps change the entire calculation about what it is that violent men can get away with. And now Alina 
She's gone off to college. She is now one of the most powerful spokespeople in her community and in her nation fighting the sexual abuse of, of children. And she now mentors other young children as they walk through this difficult process of healing. And one of the things that she can tell them is that she knows there's a good God because she's seen the goodness of God show up through his people. And likewise for Jyoti, she's no longer being serially raped inside that brothel. iJam's local team was able to infiltrate into that sex trafficking ring. Local authorities were able to work to rescue Jyoti out. We were able to get her to a place of long-term healing where she's come to know the goodness of God. That has become real for her. And in fact, she was so empowered by that experience that she actually came to us and she said, you know what, I know where actually other children are being held. And she led us, Joe T did, on a second police raid that rescued seven more girls out from a place of horrific abuse. And one of those girls that was rescued in that seven was named Kalindi. And Kalindi said, oh, I know where even more children are being held. And Kalindi led us back on a third police raid to rescue 24 girls out from underneath this underground dungeon where they were being held in just unspeakable abuse. But on this day, the truth of the gospel went into the darkest place and brought them out into the light of God's love. And it became believable to them that God is good because the body of Christ showed up for Joti, and then Joti showed up for Kalindi, and then Kalindi showed up for these girls so that now it could become believable to them that there is a good God in the world who sees them and who loves them. This is the truth of God's love going into the darkest places. What does this mean for you and me and for Village Church? Because if you think about that story of the feeding of the 5,000, do you ever wonder, like, why did Jesus do it the way that he did? All right, I mean, if, if everybody was just hungry, why didn't he just dump manna on everybody, right? It's just like, manna, and eat up, and we'll get back to the teaching, right? I mean, why did he do it the way that he did? I think he did it for just one reason. I think he wanted to give one little boy a very cool day, right? Because a little boy goes home to see his mom who packed the lunch, right, and says, Mom, guess what Jesus did with my lunch today? He fed 5,000 people. Do we imagine that that little boy will ever in his life forget that day? And yet, was he the only boy who had some food with him to share on that day? And did Jesus have to have the lunch in order to do the miracle? Or did he just love that little boy so much that he wanted to say, wait, 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 watch what I can, see with, watch what I can do with your lunch today. Likewise, for, here, for those of us here at Village Church, what does God want to do with our lunch? What is some miracle of justice and goodness he wants to do with what we've been given? Village Church has entered into this partnership with IJM where you've helped us rescue people from slavery, where now you're helping us rescue young girls like Kalindi and Joti from 
horrific sex trafficking and seeing them brought to wholeness. This is a deep season where Village Church is joining in this journey of justice. And I would just challenge you to just lean in to the journey that God is calling you into here at Village Church to follow Jesus in this struggle for justice, to join us in deep prayer for these needs, to open up your heart to actually experience and sense the suffering and the hurt, to go back to God and prayer with him, to share the resources that he's provided you to pay for the rescue the poor themselves cannot afford, to raise your voice so that the people of Vancouver and of Canada know that there are more people in slavery than any other time in human history, but also the greatest opportunity ever to see slavery finally end. This is what God is so eager to do through us, his people. Because if you think about it, why in a world of so much suffering and hurt and need, why has God given us so much? You ever think about this? By way of an answer, I, I, always, I grew up and I, I always wanted to be a great football player, but turned out to be kind of a bad football player. But fortunately, I had two older brothers who would sit me down and explain to me why I was a bad football player. And this was an odd thing to do, but they, they were super helpful and they would say, well, Gary, see, you're small, but you're slow. <laughs> and that was helpful in a, in a weird way, I guess. And, uh, so one of the things I would do is I would go to the weight room and work out, right, just to, just to try to get bigger so I wouldn't get crushed so badly. And I'd work out and work out. And nothing would happen to my body, but I would go anyways. And, and I'd be working out in the weight room. And then I would always look over in the gym. And there in their special section of the gym were always the bodybuilders. Right? Have you seen any of these guys? Do you have any of these guys in your gym? I mean, they're just huge, right? I mean, huge chest and arms and neck and legs. And I used to just look at all that muscle mass and all that strength and all that power. And I used to just ask, but what's it all for? For a bodybuilder, it's just for posing. And the only time all that strength and power is ever really brought to bear, right, is there's, there's the crisis in the kitchen and they, and they pop open the jam jar. My prayer for us and for Village Church is that God, in a world of so much suffering and hurt and need, that God will not leave us opening jam jars, but that he'll rescue us from all things that are just too small, all preoccupations that are just trivial, and all things of fear. And lead us with courage into a world that's yearning to see the goodness of God, through us. Will you pray with me? Kind Father, thank you for your patience and gentleness with which you allow us to know you more deeply. Father, take some word of truth that may be from you today and allow it to actually take root in our hearts and transform us. Help us to take that one next good step of following you in your journey of justice in the world. And may it all go, God, to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ.